Hey, Angela and Varsha, great to see you. It's International Women's Day. Absolutely, great to see you too, Jeffrey. Yeah, we were hoping to get this pod out a bit sooner, but Omicron. That's okay, we won't let that stop us. Uh, we're really excited to be here today, and I think let's just get cracking. Exactly. Welcome to the Source Pod, everyone. I'm Varsha Devi Balakrishnan, the Education Analyst at the Ligon Group. And I'm Angela Lehman. I'm the Head of Research at the Ligon Group. And I'm Jeffrey Smart, one of the co-founders and directors of the Ligon Group. So this International Women's Day, the Ligon Group thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to really explore and dig a bit deeper into female international students. Why do they come to Australia? What is their, What are their drivers and their ambitions? What kind of student support do they need? And what can we learn about recovery from the COVID pandemic and the declines that we've seen across the sector by having a bit of a closer look at our female students. What do we know about female international students in Australia? Well, we know that our education sector is feminising. We know that female international students were relatively resilient during the first year of the pandemic. And we know that female international students are successful. They're the most successful cohorts in their studies of all of our students. This is a really interesting group of people for us to have a look at. As international education nerds at the Ligon Group, when you cast an international education lens over everything, there's so much to talk about. So casting a gendered lens over some of the data around international students in Australia was so interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And ahead of International Women's Day, the Ligon Group produced a report that had a really good look at that first year of the pandemic, 2020, and had a look at how female students compare with their male counterparts. So we've got that report up on our website, and we think that there's some interesting things that we can learn that can really help us to think about the different markets that people could be looking for in the future, but also the experiences of international students during the pandemic. Before we get into it, as followers of our newsletter will know, we have a canine bureau at the Ligon Group. Um, So occasionally you might hear some interventions and ideas from some of the canines (laughs) of the Ligon Group. That's right. (laughs) So our first guest. Yes, our first guest today is Associate Professor Fran Martin from the University of Melbourne. She's done some fantastic research that we're going to be speaking to her about today. Fran is uh, best known for her work on media and sexuality in China. She speaks fluent Mandarin. She's spent several years both studying and researching um, in mainland China and in, in Taiwan. And she's just this month published a book with Duke University Press titled Dreams of Flight, The Lives of Chinese Women Students in the West. It's based on her five-year ARC project, which followed Chinese international students through their journey studying in Australia and back to China. So we're thrilled to have Fran with us today. So I guess just to summarise, I mean, this was this was a huge project. This was a bigger research project than I've ever done before in my life. I was so lucky to have that five years of funding as a future fellowship from the ARC. I'm so grateful for that because it enabled me to do this massive project where I followed this group of 56 young women from China who came to Australia to attend university. I followed them for a number of years, like at least four, some of them for longer than that, as I did a pilot study earlier, which some of them I've sort of known for about 11 or 12 years now. I followed them essentially from before they 
left China to study through several years of university study in Australia at a number of levels. So some of them came from China and enrolled in foundation or bridging courses and then did an undergraduate degree, then did a master's degree. Some of them came over just for the master's degree. And then I continue to follow them, those of them who had graduated, you know, by the time the research finished, I followed them after graduation and into their post study lives. Okay, we didn't actually plan this bit, but it's really got to be said. The ARC funded Fran's really important research. How amazing is Australia Research Council funding for the humanities? In fact, for every broad field of research. We're talking to Fran about a piece of ARC funded research that, yep, is still delivering dividends in 2022. So I think we need to go back to Fran and hear some of her key findings. So in terms of key findings, I really found that these women's education journey was connected with their gender absolutely thoroughly right throughout that process. So if we look at their motivations for studying abroad, some of them, particularly the master's level students and their mothers, interestingly, spoke about the need for young women to study abroad and get a Western degree in order to combat gendered bias in the professional labour market in China. So that essentially they felt that girls needed to have higher level education than comparable male students because they would otherwise be disadvantaged in the labour market in China because there is you know, well established by now that there is gendered bias among employers, particularly in the private sector. Some of them wanted to sort of sidestep pressures towards so-called timely marriage currently in China, and we can talk about this a little bit more later perhaps, but currently the sort of orthodox view is that women should get married and have their first child or their children before they turn 30. So there's the start to get marriage pressure sometimes as early as their early 20s and certainly by their mid-20s. Some young women are not happy with this and want to find ways of getting away from that and study abroad can be, you know, that can be one of the motivations for study abroad as well. Fran's work really highlights some of the less spoken about impacts and effects of international education. She speaks about how being an international student was really transformative for women. It allowed them to experience different ways of being female. And there was a process of changing gender identities for many of the female students that she followed that impacted students long after they returned to China. The second big finding is that the way that they viewed their gendered identity also tended to change in the sense, broadly speaking, I found that overseas study tended to make them less likely to go along with that kind of neo-traditionalist understanding of adult women's role, the idea that it should be family focused, that you should definitely get married and have children before you're 30, that when you do have those children and that family, you should then reorient towards a family focus. They tended to think that less and less as the years went on in Australia and by the time they graduated, they saw a big difference between themselves and their friends and cousins and so on back home, female friends, in the sense that they felt quite different in their identity. They felt more individualised, we would say, in the sort of sociological term. They were, they're more focused on their own needs, desires and careers, more self-reliant, more professionally oriented. So it was a very different kind of gendered selfhood that they came out with. So those are the findings in terms of broadly in terms of gender. Australia has a very feminised 
Chinese international student cohort. 54% of our Chinese students are women. And that's interesting to hear Fran say that there's actually more motivation for women to study abroad than men. We asked Fran to share more about this ambition that they have and the drive for women to study abroad and how it interacts with being middle class in China. Not only is the cohort that studies abroad feminized, I mean, I think, yeah, you're right, we have 54, 55% women in, in Australia and that reflects a broader picture where I think about 60% of outgoing students from China last the last time that was sort of publicly available, those figures from the Chinese government showed 60% of outgoing students are women. They're also, they're middle class, right? They're not, this is not a broad section of society. It's a very specific class fraction and, and quite a numerically small one within China. So the growth of the middle classes has been encouraged by the state directly as a kind of bulwark to social stability. The state feels that if we have a, a stable and a happy middle class, that will lead to a, a kind of more stable society overall. So students' parents may be professionals, they may be entrepreneurs, they may be managers, they may be high-level technicians, they may be party cadres. Among my um, participants, we, we had all of those professions and, and um, statuses kind of represented. Uh, the middle classes generally are it's an urban class. They live in cities. They often own investments in the, in the form of real estate or other investments. You know, they own cars. They have life practices like using credit cards, traveling for leisure, traveling for education, obviously. In terms of women, though, the middle class young women of the only child generations have really got unprecedented parental resources available to them because without brothers, resources that in a society like any other, really any other society that remains somewhat sort of patriarchal and sexist in, in some regards, had they had brothers, you know, statistically those parental resources may have flowed to the, to the sons rather than the daughters. But when they're an only daughter, they have these resources available to them and their parents are very keen for them to develop themselves in terms of education, profession, career and so on. Savasha, a lot of what we've been talking about here are the experiences of Chinese students in particular. Now, you've just finished being an international student. Well done. How much of what we've been hearing rings true in your experience, having been a student and knowing lots of female students? Well, my experience is actually quite interesting because I come from a sea of boys. So I'm the only girl in my family. Um so it's somewhat different. I was the first in my family to actually come to Australia. That's before two of my brothers did. Um, and my parents have always been supportive of my studies, but also very, very eager to remind me of my ticking biological clock to get married, to have kids and to settle down. So I still am trying to strike a balance between their expectations of me and also my career aspirations. So it's, I think, just part of being a woman at this point for me. That's really fascinating, isn't it? That conflict that a lot of female students have between, you know, really being motivated to study abroad and having that encouraged by their family, but also having this pressure to kind of carry on with life. And Fran spoke a bit to us about how female students face different challenges than male students do. I think for some of them, and I'm thinking of individual stories here, like some women have more challenges than others in this regard. Mm. I did hear some, just some sort of extreme cases where 
I was in discussion for ages on for months on WeChat with one young woman who ended up not being able to come abroad to study. And I, I had only contacted women who had already done everything but enrol. Like they basically were signed up, ready to go. But this young woman who was in a, actually unusually in a rural area in the eastern provinces somewhere in a rural area, she ended up not being able to come because her parents divorced and that meant that her paternal grandfather took away the money basically and no longer would support her overseas study but gave that money to her male cousin. Mm-hmm. So she was absolutely heartbroken and that and obviously and and that really represents you know that there's a challenge like that that's a, that's a kind of a, a patriarchal organization within the family where that old style patriarchy really reared its head in the event of a divorce and it meant that she couldn't come i'm thinking also i mean other other women in my cohort that i that i was working with faced challenges like that during study you know uh again in the event of divorces in the event of sort of family funds being reoriented towards male cousins and so on that that can happen also those that didn't have such dramatic challenges in financial terms really felt extremely distressed at times by that pressure that marriage pressure from family back at home in the case of mothers or aunties or even uncles and others back home who would kind of <laughs> send WeChat messages every day or do video calls sort of piling on the marriage pressure at a particular age, you know, around 24 or 25. I mean, that would have caused them stress had they still been in China. But I think it was all the more so because they were here and felt like an increasing disconnection with that sort of value system of essentially compulsory marriage by a set deadline. So that's another big challenge. So really it's about that tension between the focus on self-development versus the pressure to embody that a certain kind of feminine role. There's another participant whose story I just remembered who's this was another very sad story. She had a very steady boyfriend back in China and they were planning to get married. She said in her initial interview to me that she felt she had been rather headstrong in deciding to come abroad for study at this point. She was 24 when she came for a master's degree. And I said, what do you mean headstrong? And she said, well, I mean, it's just like if I don't come now, I never would have been able to come because we would get married and then the the opportunities close. But maybe my boyfriend feels like I'm leaving him alone. And it's, you know, that obviously perhaps been a bit of tension around that. While she was here, a couple of years later, her boyfriend essentially broke things off, just dropped her, picked a fight, dropped her, would, wouldn't speak to her again. And she found out that he had another girlfriend and was, you know, her, her chances of marrying her first love then were lost as a result of her coming abroad. Now, she was, she's ended up happy with her decision. She's back in China working in a very good job and she feels she's got a different kind of life plan now. But at the time, that was a huge challenge. I mean, there's a big emotional cost to having done something, in her words, headstrong, right, like slightly unconventional in pursuing the kind of education and professional development route rather than the marriage route at that time in her life. So, Angela and Varsha, what have we learnt from Fran's research so far? So far, we've heard that there are great motivations and drivers for Chinese women to study abroad. 
However, there's also a lot of conflicting demands for a lot of women to return home, to get married and to have babies. However, we also heard from Fran that for some women, when they're studying abroad, they get to really experience a different way of life and to feel a little bit free from some of the pressures that they do face at home. So there are some particular maybe experiences that are unique perhaps to women as opposed to men. I think we've also heard in that last piece from Fran that there's also this kind of like parental surveillance, familial surveillance over the daughter who's studying abroad in ways that, I don't know, I'm not sure if they apply to boys who are studying abroad, dudes who are studying abroad. Do either of you have any kind of like insights? I think there's always going to be that sense of is my daughter safe as opposed to is my son safe? Um, I think that's just coming from a parents always tend to be more overprotective of their daughters as opposed to sons. I think my parents definitely were and it was a big struggle for them to let me be the first one to go to Australia in the first place. Um, Yeah, I think there's always that helicopter parenting that's always going to happen for female international students. Yeah, and the academic research bears that out too. I think there's there's been studies that have been done that show that women really do face a lot more familial sense of duty defines their study abroad experience too. So you, you start to see female students really expressing an emotion of guilt when they're away from their family and that they're, they're not. And, and we found that at the Ligon Group when we were speaking to students throughout the pandemic, that there was a sense that from female students that they felt guilty um, that they should be back home helping out. So it's very interesting in terms of knowing what kind of support structures to put around female students to help them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're correct to reference some of the research we did during the pandemic, because equally, there can be an overprotectiveness. I think, Farsha, you said this about the helicopter parenting thing that can actually lead to female international students desperate to know what's going on with granddad or cousin or whatever, and not being told the full story because mum and dad don't want to upset the student who's studying abroad and that can lead to all sorts of distress as well so you're absent from the family you're experimenting with your gender you're experimenting with your place in the world and what you might become it's really complicated isn't it yeah it definitely is there's a lot of nuances and layers to peel apart from that that leads very nicely onto talking about communication because I think what we're talking about now is that link between the female student and home and, and their responsibilities at home and how they communicate with their family and maybe that lack of communication sometimes, which, as you said, sometimes students felt they weren't being told the full story of what was going on at home. So we talked to Fran a little bit about how international students communicate with each other. What can we learn about how students support each other and the kinds of media and communication that they're using when they're in Australia. This was really um, a key finding in relation to, I guess, the lives of students in Australia and then consequently their kind of well-being in a social or, or emotional sense. The students among themselves, I'm, I'm sure many people know this already, the, the, the key role of in-language social media, I just can't underline this enough the current cohorts of Chinese students have the relevant platforms open on their phone generally 24 hours a day and are constantly looking at them, whether that's WeChat, that was the big one in the years that I did the study between 2015 and 2020, approx, um, it's still big. Also TikTok or Douyin, as it's called in Chinese, that's another popular one. Increasingly, I'm seeing now up after the study really among women students, Xiaohongshu, 
So these, and, and others too, Weibo and others. So I feel like when students are here, these are not just social media. They're not just a little distraction. They're a really central part of life. They're the way that students make sense of the city. You know, where can I find somewhere to live? Where can I find a doctor? Where can I, you know, buy my groceries? What should I do if I'm the victim of crime, etc.? They will look there first. Where can I find friends? Communicate with friends you already know, obviously, on these platforms, which have a continuity with one's use of the, pla- the same platforms before you left China. You can, you can stay in that same circle. You can also expand it while you're here, but the ways that that expands, if the students are mainly using Chinese language platforms, the expansion then is going to be to other um, members of the Chinese diaspora, whether mm-hmm. that's here in Australia or globally. So that was really a key recommendation that I had in the policy-oriented report that I authored, the need for consistent, skillful and considered engagement with relevant in-language media by service providers and universities in Australia. I think we see that a little bit more, like over the years of the study, I started to see more WeChat accounts opened by various um, universities and service providers, but it just still could be done so much better. These are media that you can't just sort of have it, you can't think of it as kind of a web page, which is fairly static and it just sits there and they can consult that if they need it. It needs to be interactive. You know, you need to be posting regularly and and, answer, and getting into discussions and answering questions and kind of having a bit of a persona um, in these media. We could employ expert graduate students, international graduates, to help Australian service providers skill up on these platforms because you can't it's not easy you know I mean, it has to be done in language it has and there's certain protocols to how to do it effectively Savasha, in your experience does this kind of resonate this concept of international students turning to their social networks to find support answer questions talk amongst themselves and really kind of build a sense of community absolutely i think in all the social listening we've been doing for the social source social media is their go-to place to connect back home and to even vice versa for those that are offshore to connect back to australia social media is actually where everyone's gathering and sharing their thoughts their feelings to friends families and to universities as well that's so true and particularly in the chinese experience too where you've got different platforms which we are not particularly familiar with here in australia weibo and wechat for example and also new emerging social media platforms like the xiaohongshu which is like a a video sharing platform that many many particularly young women are using in China. It's massively challenging, I think, for universities because it is is used predominantly in Chinese language and it's hard to tap into really. So I think, you know, it's really something that does create a challenge, but it's also something that's really worthwhile us understanding and being involved with in order to really properly uh, communicate with students. Yeah, look, you're both completely right. And I think that one of the things that we've learnt over our time doing social listening during the pandemic is that if you're not listening to these conversations in real time, if you're waiting for a survey to tell you the results about what students are thinking, you're missing the opportunity to actually frame a message and a communication that helps to support international students where they are at the time that they're talking about a particular concern. I guess that takes us to health and well-being and international students, particularly in post-COVID times. So this is what Fran had to tell us. 
I mean, I think, again, this, this might be a question that's a little more general, but I will say that I think both parents and women students themselves do tend to have personal safety questions front and centre in their mind in a way that may be different from male students and their parents. I think women's safety, they're perceived by themselves and their families to be like more at risk. It's especially important to protect the safety of a daughter or a young woman in a way that I'm, I'm sure that boys' parents are concerned about their safety as well, but there's kind of that sense that somehow women are more vulnerable, which indeed they are, we are. So when studying in Australia, I think international students in general can be vulnerable to becoming victims of crime in, in a number of ways, like due to unfamiliarity with the local environment, lack of local support networks. They don't typically have a car or access to private transportation when they arrive. They may be subject to attacks that are motivated by their perceived race or international student status. Or that, I mean, they, I think that that is true. They also perceive that to be a risk. They may also, I mean, I think education agents in China, I, I know they do because I've heard them, they paint an idealised picture of safety in Australia because one of the national brands of Australia is it's safe, unlike America, right, where there's all that gun crime. So the idea is it's a safe society, it's got low crime rates, it's multicultural, so there's no racism. So they have this idealised picture of safety in their mind and when they come then, they may not be best prepared to protect their own safety. Part of what we wanted to highlight through this podcast today was not just about gender, but also about how gender interacts with different parts of a person's identity. For example, all of our international students in Australia come from different cultural backgrounds, of course. This means that the way that you experience your gender is very different from someone from a different national or ethnic background. So we wanted to explore this a little bit more. How do things like race, ethnicity, even socioeconomic class interact with gender and help to define and shape the way that you see and experience the world? Rangi Fernando is a Sri Lankan-born PhD student at Victoria University Centre for Applied Informatics in the Institute for Sustainable Industries and Livable Cities. Rwangi believes in giving back and supporting females of the cult background. Rwangi founded STEM Sisters, supporting and celebrating female international students and migrants, women of colour, in science, engineering, technology and mathematics field. So we spoke to Rwangi about the intersectionalities of being a woman, a woman of colour and how it affects women in STEM. And here's what she had to say. Gender is what looked at as a main barrier and the discussion stops there. But what you need to really look into specifically, like Australia, which is a multicultural country, which uh, I think 50% of Australians either are born overseas or at least uh, one of their parents are born overseas. So in such a situation, which is a blessing, to be honest with you, when you're considering STEM, but women of color or intersectionality, not just women of color, all intersectionalities like disability, LGBTQ, all of them needs to have more emphasis. Not, it shouldn't just stop by gender. Or some people think we'll first figure out gender and then come to other intersectionality. It will take another hundred years to get there. But we can do this, we do all these, look into all of these intersectionalities uh, at the same time and try to come up with systems, approaches, procedures, policies, so that we can help everyone. Because in STEM, 
actually saying you shouldn't look at this problem as a humanitarian aspect. STEM is benefiting largely because of the diversity, because diversity is number one key for innovation. And STEM is driven by innovation. That's what we need from STEM. And for a country like Australia, having this multicultural society is a blessing. So you have all of these diverse people coming from all over the world with all of these great talents. And if you can use them wisely and you know strongly, Australia can immensely benefit. So um, definitely there have been challenges that I have faced. Um, you know, how do I look, my accent, how I speak English, because this is not my mother tongue. And all of these things and how I appear, my name, a lot of people are changing their names. I try to advocate not to, because you lose your identity, you lose yourself. You can act only for a certain time. So these are some of the, you know, challenges. Even I have to consider myself, not that I've, you know, I didn't choose for them. But those are barriers which are available in the society or, or imposed on us by the society. So these things has to be looked at, but we are working. There have been great women where we stand on their shoulders for years and years who worked for our rights to vote, rights to drive, rights to many things, which, which has been excellent. We are in a much better society, but we still have a long way. I think Ruangi really brought up an excellent point um, when she talked about accents and uh, different ways that we speak English. I know me, myself, people call out the fact that I have different accents. And I think that really affects um, female international students, not just in STEM, but in their career and in public speaking as well. And I think that the point there about, you know, encouraging people to keep their name and, and not try to Englishify it or something is a really interesting one because it, it highlights the way that people are seen as being different according to the way that they, even their name sounds, which is such a personal thing. Ruangi takes us through the language and cultural barriers to careers in STEM. She cites some statistics and actually asks really important questions around why female international students actually struggle to get jobs in the STEM field. The specific challenges for STEM women of colour, I wish to share some statistics from the Australian Chief Scientist Office, which highlights um, that in Australia, university qualified STEM women, 56% of them are born overseas, right? So that means university, like you, you have TAFE qualification, university qualified. So university qualified STEM women, 56% are directly born overseas. But unemployment of women being overseas is 14.1 compared to women born in Australia is 3.3. So, but is furthermore surprising, this is the statistics in 2016. In 2006, the difference between overseas born and Australian born was less than 2%. So rather than making it better and reducing that even the smaller gap, we have significantly gone worse, right? So this is very interesting. So that means you directly identify there are significant barriers for women who are coming here. Most of them who would, would have arrived as an international student, got their qualification, which is from Australia, which is great qualification to have. And they become permanent residents and they are unemployed. Or 
they would have come here as a migrant with having great qualification. That's why they have given the permanent residency and unable to do so. So there is no lack in their skills, right? So the challenge is they don't have the right network or how they look, what their name look, look like, or their language barriers or their accent. So these are the challenges that they face. So if we need to do like, it's not just, as I said, this is not a problem of human age. If we can gain these skills and, and what is more surprisingly is SEM is increasing employment, like, you know, doubling its quota for employment, you know, every five, 10 years, right? So there is so much of demand for talent, STEM talent, right? In an area where is so much of demand of STEM talent, and then there is this skilled labor and people and women with all these diverse skills and, you know, cultural and linguistically diverse and then skill set and everything, you have the demand, you have the supply, and what's the real problem? So this is a significant challenge that we are facing, which requires attention from every part of Australia, from the governments to policies to organization, from the community, from universities. So one of the amazing things that Rawangi and her colleagues have done is to start an organization called STEM Sisters. STEM Sisters is helping female students studying STEM subjects to address employment barriers and challenges for female international students. So STEM Sisters is an organization uh, where we empower STEM women of color, which is uh, linguistically and culturally diverse women. So uh, why we need that, as I explained earlier, the statistics is, is I didn't know about the statistics when I arrived, I don't think even the statistics were available at that time because I tried to, being a researcher myself, I was really trying to figure out anything which explains this. Because when I joined my university, I soon realized because I love connecting with people and that's the first thing that I did. So I I really tried to see other, other women in STEM and likewise, so I kind of worked with multiple other university organizations, non-university organizations, tried to go for meetups, get to know people. Where I go, I saw there was significant amount of women of color and they were really struggling. Some of them are excellent PhDs with, you know, first tier articles, four or five of them during their PhDs but unable to get a job because like, you know, they are also trying in academia, but even in industry, they couldn't get a job. And I really was struggling to figure out why, why this is happening because this is excellent skill set, right? And I moved further and further. I investigated. This was, this was out there everywhere. Some were very good speaking, very, they're very charged up. They have their confidence. Even those type of girls also couldn't get a good job. And this really struck to me why. And I thought, you know, this, this, this can be my future ending my PhD as well. So I was thinking actually find resources to figure out why and how we can help each other. So I started developing my investigation, trying to connect with people. And when I find whatever, I thought it's not just about me. I always had that feeling because, you know, we, I always believe we have enough in this world to share. So I always thought I need to kind of figure out a way to share what I learned and kind of develop. And I felt like we didn't have that table for ourselves. Like we didn't have the seat in the table. So I tried to create that table for ourselves because we, I knew we were quite a lot of them, 
right? So, you know, even if it was a niche, right? Same women of color, right? It's, it's a niche. But I knew this niche is not small at all, right? Even I didn't find the statistics at that time. So we've learned so much today from our guests, Fran Martin and Rawangi Fernando. What stood out to you, Varsha, about the challenges, I guess, and also the opportunities of, uh, you know, having female international students in Australia um, and some of the things that they can contribute? I think it's a really interesting take to have a gendered lens at looking at international student cohorts. And I think being an, a female international student myself previously, I never looked at it in terms of a gendered way. And now that I'm starting to, I think there's a lot of layers there and a lot of unpacking and learning that can be done. Yeah, exactly. I I noticed when we were doing the research for the report that we produced just before International Women's Day, that there's a real lack of data, actually, and and a lack of, of research and insight specifically into female international students. And I think this is an area that we're going to see more interest in and more growth in the future. I think it also gives us some interesting, uh, I guess, insight into the kinds of support and services we should be delivering as we're coming out of COVID, particularly when we think about what Fran and Rawangi told us about feelings of safety, I suppose, in particular, but also the way that international students need to be supported to enhance their well-being through what could be a kind of a vulnerable time. Yeah, I think you're both right. And as I think you pointed out in the research, Angela, really... We think that providers need to have a market diversification strategy, if we can go there to that contested word, that really thinks about female international students as a really important part of a diversification strategy. For sure. And, you know, when we think about the markets that female international students come from to Australia, if you take China out of the equation, of course, we know that China sends more female international students than than other places. But even without China. We look at other countries that send more female students to Australia than male. And we've got Vietnam, we've got Singapore. These are real growth markets for Australia and they do tend to send more females than males. So there is a need, I think, as we're looking at diversification to be taking these questions seriously. Yeah. So if you haven't actually read or downloaded a copy of the research report, you really need to visit theligangroup.com because it's right there. It's full of really interesting stuff and we're really quite proud of it. I'm thinking that this has been such an interesting episode and such an interesting topic to try and get our heads around that we maybe need to revisit International Women's Day in a sense and have a look at a podcast that looks at the experiences of women working in international education. What do you reckon? Sounds like a great idea. So you can subscribe to The Source Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ligon Group. Subscribe to The Source, the companion newsletter to this podcast at theligongroup.com. And you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter if you're real international education nerds. Good to see you again, Angela and Varsha on the pod. (laughs) Great to see you guys too. Thanks for listening. I'm ahead of the game.